This is the Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad Network. Welcome all on the road to nowhere. Over the course of this series, we will be revisiting and examining Wes Craven's controversial first feature, The Last House on the Left. I'm your host, R.C. Jara. Join me on a trip through unrepentant villainy as we parse through the details of the film's inception, release, and what makes it an enduring work in the horror genre. Trigger warning. This series covers the mutilation and rape as shown in The Last House on the Left, as well I will be covering the harrowing accounts by crew members of when pantomime violence on set turned into actual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Last episode, we covered the early life and career of writer-director Wes Craven. At the beginning, I posed a two-part question. What drives a creator in the horror sphere to create in the first place, and how does that work make an impact? We touched on the upbringing and social issues which played a role in the development of his first feature script, The Night of Vengeance, later retitled The Last House on the Left. But the question itself remains open-ended. As horror creators across mediums, our craft is the air that we breathe, so much so that our work may start to represent tensions beyond our control. What possesses a creator to create is not solely dependent on the tools of the craft. We are always accounting for time and place, and sometimes the work outside drives the work itself. The primal scream that is the last house on the left resounded in an era of fraught social relations and political upheaval, an era in which the craft of cinema thrived on both earnest and cannibalized representations of the hippie movement. The tumultuous changes of the 1960s and early 70s provided a ground almost too solid for Krug and company to stomp on. The dream of the 1960s was encapsulated by the Summer of Love, which inspired several love-ins, concerts, and picnics. Its violent implosion ran almost parallel to the aesthetic and storytelling innovations within the horror genre itself. This shift in style and content in this particular moment in time has been explored by media scholars through a postmodernist lens. But before delving too deep into postmodernism as an artistic sensibility, we must travel back in time to that place, when everything seemed possible all at once, where the seams in the fabric of the peace and love generation nebulously frayed from view. The Last House on the Left, apart from being a proto-slasher, also falls within the hippie exploitation subgenre, which sought to grab aspects of the hippie movement to make use of in sensationalist media. Not all films were particularly negative, however. In 1967, prolific filmmaker Roger Corman made The Trip, a film which portrays the hellish acid trip of a TV commercial director played by Peter Fonda. I'm Peter Fonda. We've just finished making a movie dealing with the most talked about subject of the day, LSD. I honestly believe it will be today's most talked about motion picture. The name of the picture is The Trip. Here goes. Oh, it gives off an orange cloud of light that just blows right out over the city. Beauty you cannot believe inundates you. Your world, the people world, is fragmented. Distorted. 
going to die, man. Oh, no. Oh, and I, I don't want to die. If that happens to you again, you go ahead and go with it. Just go ahead and die. Whatever happens. Its visuals are bizarre and downright horrific, and its narrative is disjointed. But it made an honest attempt at probing the allure of LSD at the time. Its commercial value and artistic integrity were not completely in conflict with one another. And Corman even went so far as to take acid himself to better understand the effects before stepping behind the camera. The film made $10 million off of a $100,000 budget. Then there's a film like 1969's Easy Rider, a complete industry game-changer that saw the majority of the creative team behind the trip reunite for a more incisive look at the changing socio-political landscape of the United States. This year, the judges of the Cannes Film Festival presented the award Best Film by a New Director to Easy Rider. It's the story of a man who went looking for America and couldn't find it anywhere. Easy Rider stars Peter Fonda. It's not every man that can live off the land, you know. You do your own thing in your own time. You should be proud. Also starring Dennis Hopper, the award-winning director of Easy Rider. Man, look, I gotta get out of here, man. We got things we wanna do, man. Like, I, I, I gotta get out of here, man. Co-starring Jack Nicholson. I got to see her see, Scissor happy, beautify America thing going on around here. They're trying to make everybody look like Yule Brenner. You know, this used to be a hell of a good country. I don't understand what's going on with it. Everybody got chicken, man. That's what happened. The exploitation half of hippie exploitation was always present. What differentiated each film was intent. While the more serious films aimed inwards and outwards in a spiritual manner, there were films which thumbed their nose at the counterculture in its entirety. I saw a very funny movie the other night. It is the gassiest, grooviest, swingingest, trippiest movie you've ever seen. It's Otto Preminger's psychedelic trip. Skidoo, skidoo, the only thing that matters is with who you do. Skidoo, skidoo, the only thing that matters is Future Hollywood royalty Jack Nicholson lent his talents to yet another dramatization of youths on LSD in 1968's Psych Out. This film was much darker and more forward with its violence than The Trip. Here they are. The hippie, the mind blower, the pot smoker, the psychedelic dropouts. If you see this girl around, call in, will you? She's a runaway, the cops are flashing her picture. is a bad trip. Love is beautiful. Stoney, Stoney! Warren's freaking out at the gallery. Okay, Warren. It's okay, everything's cool. No sweat. Now you stay away. Oh my God, I can't stand it. I gotta, I gotta cut it off. 
and as if he hadn't already established himself well enough, Nicholson co-wrote a feature with director Bob Raffleson for the rock group, The Monkees. That film is titled Head. Head is a strange project for a family-friendly band curated and thriving on television. To better explain using current references, the film posits what it would be like if One Direction made a hybrid narrative concert film about the global war on terror. truly baffling stuff that doesn't always come together coherently, save for a few interesting visual juxtapositions and this poignant line. Pleasure, the inevitable byproduct of our civilization. A new world, its only preoccupation will be how to amuse itself. The tragedy of your times, my young friends, is that you may get exactly what you want. Step lively, gentlemen. Let's dig on that a little deeper. Given that organizers and leaders everywhere were being targeted by some arm of the state, especially the Black Panthers and other non-white organizations, I wouldn't quite frame the tail end of the 60s as a time when people were getting exactly what they wanted. But the air was certainly intoxicating, especially in and around the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. To paraphrase Dylan, you know something's happening, but you don't know what it is. And whatever it was gave people a sense of hope and carte blanche to live as freely as possible. On January 1967, Golden State Park was host to an event known as the Human Bee Inn. It was a spiritual awakening of sorts, a gathering for social change, a place to be open about who you were. There was an embrace of ideals which actively sought to dismantle the prevailing conservative social attitudes of the time. Among a crowd of 30,000 hippies, clinical psychologist and writer Timothy Leary uttered his famous phrase, turn on, tune in, drop out. To hear Dr. Leary elaborate. We tell young people today, drop out of school, because schools, education today, is the worst narcotic drug of all. Don't politic, don't vote. These are old men's games, impotent and senile old men that want to put you onto their uh, old chess games of war and power. Drop out, uh, tune in with natural things, take off your shoes, uh, get back in tune with God's harmony, surround yourself with beauty and sacred objects. You can't get caught in the conforming, wrote lockstep, which we call American society. By the late 60s, boomers constituted over a third of the U.S. population at the time. At almost 80 million, the values that a portion of this age group had were a rejection of the consumerist post-war lifestyles that many of their families lived up to that point. They had contempt for a country which systemically pursued and punished their heroes in arts and private citizens during the Red Scare for a reckless war which fed many of their peers to the aggressive colonial machine in its endeavors overseas. To add to that, the trauma of growing up at a time when total nuclear annihilation seemed totally inevitable. To live peacefully and build a society free from oppression was a goal well worth chasing. Undoing the conservative social programming of their youth, or dropping out, was almost necessary. Yet as the Haight-Ashbury experiment would prove, Trouble resulting from disorganization and unfocused action would drive the movement to a fracture. By the end of 1967, there were 100,000 hippies who moved to San Francisco. A quaint, mixed-race, mixed-income area, Haight-Ashbury saw an influx of bodies it was not prepared to accommodate. 
Nor did there seem to be enough interest in the political education services that were available from tired, underappreciated organizers. The 1967 film Something's Happening, otherwise known as Hippie Revolt, captured multiple facets of the summer of love and the haze that surrounded it. What follows are segments of Something's Happening that will be presented with minimal commentary, mostly because I believe that the ambiguities and listlessness at the time speak for themselves. And getting a feel for the headspace of those who were there brings clarity to the depths that this particular moment in history would plunge into. Some person told me something about they wanted to have no morals at all, which is utterly ridiculous. I think that's really what the hippies are trying to do. They are rebellious. A hippie is a kid who gets his slang from, I don't know what the radio station out here. In New York, it's WMCA and Murray the K, you know? For two years, they've been, they've been listening to rock groups, first out of England and then out of, out of California and New York City, who've been drug-associated, who are former jazz musicians, who are very much in a bohemian and avant-garde scene, and, they, and suddenly it's hip to talk drugs. A year ago, I walked in a subway station in New York, and I saw a sign advertising one of the radio stations or one of the disc jockeys, and it said, Joe O'Brien turns people on. Groovy. They, they picked it up. They get it newspapers, right? All the newspapers have labeled these people hippies. Somehow, somehow the word came out, and the newspapers weren't being friendly. It was a derogatory word. Everybody knew it was a derogatory word, except the fucking 15-year-old who wanted to dress up and find an answer to the fact that he couldn't get along with his parents. So he runs away to hate Ashbury, and he proudly proclaims that now he's no longer, he is no longer a neurotic juvenile. He is now a hippie. But you know something? He's still a neurotic juvenile. The people that are called the people of the hippie movement are fine people. They're misunderstood people, misunderstood uh, particularly by police authority. There's, there's just no communication between these people. But I think to go back to this point again about the, the only problem really is a lack of communication between the, the, the normal community and the hippie community. Well, it, look, it looks harmless for the most part, really, except for some of the, you know, some of the glazed looks you begin to yeah. wonder because you yeah, hear about that's this. that's a private thing, you know. Is it? Well, I, is I, it? I, yeah, you, well, you hear all this stuff about LSD and the whole bit, you know, and you, and you wonder, you know, how many of these guys actually are, how many of them are just, you know, just making with it, how many of them are really true hippies.
While the scene itself was as welcoming as it could be to new faces each and every day, organizers and members of the community struggled to find housing for people. This struggle was encapsulated by kids who were moving to the hate, finding nothing but pavement to lie on. The living situation was beginning to wear thin because, to organizers, there was a difference between freedom and license to do as you please. The rules of engagement were practically non-existent, and with the community overwhelmed, the kids on the street were left rudderless. The dock ends with a survival rally to protest Vietnam. It looks vibrant, but at a strong disadvantage. The assembly is curtailed by rows of policemen, and then declared unlawful by the city's police lieutenant. As the crowd disperses, shots of scattered trash litter the screen with sounds of sirens and angry protesters underneath. As quickly as that emerged, the summer of love was beginning to collapse in on itself. If there was a collective dream anywhere, it was being dreamt in the Hyde-Ashbury in crowds of tens of thousands. And as the dream came crashing down, times fell into a vortex laden with more paranoia, militarism, and destruction than the movement that was initially inspired against it could handle. The occupation of Vietnam did not end in 1967, nor the year after, nor the one after that. The crowds turned restless on the hate, finally leaving it in shambles once it was clear there would be no massive change happening there. The horror genre was beginning to catch up to the nihilism pervading US culture at the time. Whatever was in the air on the west coast turned into a stink that traveled across the nation. The most important horror film to grasp these fears in the beginning, albeit from a straight world perspective, was George A. Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Showcasing a blunt East Coast reality, the film proposes that whatever semblance of normality shaken by the chaos of the outside world was insurmountable without dedicated cooperation. But what about the vanguard of peace and love? What became of the hippies and their cinema? In two short years, the vitality of the hippie movement on the West Coast had dampened but it would still be dealt another blow, one which would give further license to authority figures to use hippies as a scapegoat for all of the country's ills, and one whose cinema would be seen as a demonic backlash to the broken promises of the era. Among crowds high on acid and love and freedom stood Charles Manson. In the spring of 1967, the recently released convict from Terminal Island found himself with nowhere to go except back in the hole. He had been in jail the second time for attempting to cash a forged treasury check, although he had a prior charge against him under the Mann Act for prostitution. With the guitar lessons he received in prison, and his close study of Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, Manson threw himself at the burgeoning West Coast scene. To the groups of lonely, dejected youths, his word was bound to a higher truth about humanity, and he exploited them through fear and violence for his own psychotic purposes. A combination of failed attempts at rock stardom and a racist, apocalyptic world philosophy influenced Manson to orchestrate vengeful killings. The Tate-LaBianca murders, which took place between August 9 and 10th in 1969, were vicious. Though Manson failed in his ultimate goal at sparking a race war, the killings shook the Hollywood establishment, the public at large, and even got the attention of President Richard Nixon, who declared Manson and his family guilty during their highly publicized trials. As ghoulish as it may sound, Watching the Manson family on TV wouldn't be the only time the newfound paranoia of predatory hippie types would seize audiences. Now that the free love generation had experienced a major setback in the court of public opinion, the hippie exploitation genre had responded in kind. These films mutated to reflect a bloodthirsty, ugly milieu. Gone were the introspective dramas and even goofy, out-of-touch comedies. 
Among the most pointed examples of films openly resenting the hippie movement is the 1970 film I Drink Your Blood. This hybrid cult slasher zombie film was written and directed by David Durston for Cinemation Industries, a New York-based exploitation film studio. The film takes its concept from the real-life story of a rabies infection in a small Iranian village, but it focuses on a group of long-haired psychopathic cultists inspired by the Manson family. The biggest, bloodiest, horror show in history. I drink your blood. Men become animals and eat their victims. I drink your blood. A young boy infects an entire town with rabies and turns a group of men into a band of bloodthirsty zombies ravaging a peaceful countryside. I drink your blood will make your blood curdle and your skin crawl. But you will sit there and suffer through the tortures of the damned. You will sit and watch this shocking ugliness splashing across the screen. You will ask yourself, what acts of sadism will this electric knife be used for? What horrors will be performed with this axe, this hose, this dagger, this gun, this sword? All the implements necessary to make this the ultimate in adult horror films. We have painted a bloody picture. But it is only a small part of what actually takes place in I Drink Your Blood. Can you take it? If you have a strong constitution, we challenge you to test it and sit through. I Drink Your Blood. I Drink Your Blood, though sillier than the trailer would have you believe, can be read as a nihilistic story about burning the last vestiges of the summer of love. This is exemplified by a looming sense of doom about its small town New York setting, which faces demolition along with being trapped by a satanic cult of hippies. Everything goes completely off the rails when a frustrated young boy takes the blood of a rabies-infected dog and injects it into pies that are bought and eaten by the hippies. Then the town becomes a hub for wild, cannibalistic Satanists. Not unlike how the conservative media of today paints anyone to the left of the establishment. The exploitation films of the early 1970s completely severed any formalities about portraying violence on screen. I Drink Your Blood specifically got an X rating because of it. This was perhaps an organic progression to the works of Mario Bava and Herschel Gordon Lewis. The grand guignol-oriented horror of the cinematic underground was coming to a head. The scariest horror villains no longer stalked castles or fell from the sky in popular cinema. The presence of these new villains did not serve a jingoistic level of heroism typified by white, barrel-chested heroes. They met straight society face to face. As neighbors, friends, people who ran in circles outside of your own, 
This is the era that collapsed boundaries between the viewer and their experience. This is the time of postmodernist horror. We refer once more to Beatty's documentary. This again is something I think that the adults can't grasp because they have shaped their world, our world, into what it is with guns and bombs. They have no concept of uh, outloving the enemy, for instance. Do him so much good he doesn't have a chance to do you bad, for instance. Get him with a kiss before he can slap you. This time they have no concept of it. And you can't really blame them for not understanding. But it's obvious to our generation that their way doesn't work, it hasn't worked, it isn't going to work. So a change has to be made, and if somebody has to get turned upside down to do it, well then, <laughs> everybody on their head. The concept of outloving the enemy may have been embraced in 1967, but by 1972 the enemy might as well have been anybody who wasn't you. If you've seen The Last House on the Left, you know that the Collingwoods do not take this road when they discover that their new guests have raped and murdered their daughter Mary. They avenge her, and the karmic backlash against Krug and his company of murderers and rapists leaves the film without any sense of closure. What about this new era of horror lends itself to an ending so hopeless? Hey, what's new in the outside world? <laughs> Same old stuff. Murder and mayhem. I think it's crazy. What's crazy? All that blood and violence. I thought you were supposed to be the love generation. Throughout its cinematic development, the horror genre rarely shied away from presenting its audience with fairly dark subject matter. Classical horror films, especially those made prior to the implementation of the restricted Hays Code, had dealt with rape and murder in their films. As a postmodernist text, however, The Last House on the Left dislodged the filter completely. Postmodernism has implications which extend past films across a multitude of disciplines. Though it's enough for now to relate the term solely to the evolution of the horror film and its ceaseless dialogue with oppressive social mores. Dr. Isabel Pinedo, associate professor at Hunter College, has written about the phenomenon of postmodernism in her article, Recreational Terror, Postmodern Elements in the Contemporary Horror Film. Even in the incredibly specific field of cinema studies, the term is reasonably malleable, but my understanding of it is such. A postmodernist horror film is one which subverts and transgresses the classical horror film structure. They contain monsters who threaten to disrupt the social order, and whose terror is difficult to resist. In the most pessimistic of classical horror films, the monster still meets their end at the hands of a greater moral authority. The moral universe as envisioned in the postmodernist horror film, however, is more chaotic and ambiguous. There is no rationality for violence on the part of the aggressor, and what violence is engaged by the protagonist is usually forced upon them as a means of survival. Postmodernism as a style, a philosophy, a historical condition, breaks down categories and institutions. Classical horror films, particularly gothic horror, can be morally and aesthetically complex. Postmodernist horror is openly reactionary, on the other hand. There is more freedom to explore the avant-garde, be provocative, and its morals are decentralized. Meaning, fluidity usually encourages viewers to reject a binary of right and wrong, good and evil, as defined by a greater cultural hegemony. The postmodernist horror film operates on a much more subjective level. Creators have a greater control over the means with which to terrify, and the only thing that matters is a willingness to engage. Wes Craven and Sean Cunningham conceived of The Last House on the Left partially as a response to the violence that was prevalent in U.S. culture at the time. 
What makes this film a perfect example of postmodernist horror is that Krug, his son Junior, Sadie, and Fred are all just people. What they do is monstrous, and the film isn't so loose or chaotic that it lets their actions fall by the wayside. But they are flesh and blood, and the film uses their monstrosity to illustrate a change in how horror films can be read. If by some warped sense of the imagination the Manson family were responsible for the death of the Summer of Love, here now were Krug and company, ready to do away with any remaining innocence from the horror genre. As previously discussed in episode 1, Craven's riff on the Virgin Spring does not eschew the biblical nature underlying the Collingwood's retribution towards their daughter's assailants. He instead strips the narrative of any sense of redemption. For this reason, the film is relentlessly bleak. It doesn't fail to channel anger towards authority figures. All the cops in this film are clumsy and cartoonish, perhaps making them too easy to target while avoiding a deeper commentary. But the film's real critique is in the authority of a higher power, and its protection of the ideal nuclear family, untouched by changing social tides. Craven makes the point that even white upper-class families, for whom the police exist to protect in the first place, cannot avoid whatever evil the U.S. was capable of producing overseas and domestically. Craven went to his own backyard and started a fire with the last house on the left. It is an ugly film with ugly people in it doing ugly things to one another. The violence begets more violence. Its viciousness is even reflected in the score. The film offers nothing but the assurance that this cycle will continue to pull people into the depths of the darkness they are capable of. To avoid fainting, keep repeating to yourself, it's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Last house on the left. Despite its sarcastic marketing, it is completely possible to walk into the last house on the left and feel helpless. I would understand an aversion to the film just by looking at its poster, which features the dead woman slumped on a tree in a very realistic black and white photograph. Before I end this episode, there is an aspect of the film's production I would like to address, which will be explored in the next episode more thoroughly. Boundary-crossing horror can be cathartic. To me, this film has helped illustrate the rage I felt after my own experiences with sexual assault. But it would be irresponsible of me to only throw praise at and study the film without exploring how dangerous a set this was to the people working on it, particularly the women. The film, no matter how loud a statement against violence it may be, still ended up inflicting real violence on at least one of its leads. Sandra Peabody, as Mary, suffers some of the worst abuse in the script. Apart from it being hostile production, her attendance of the final cut of The Last House on the Left saw her walking out and away from the film for good. It's tough to find material on Peabody talking about the film at length, but given what she went through, it's not surprising. In the next episode, we will be focusing on the film's significance to the rape-revenge genre, and we will be looking at it from the perspective of those involved with shooting the most upsetting material in it. As well, we will be delving further into the film's lasting impact on horror and horror film scholarship. Thank you for joining me on the road to nowhere. I've been your host, R.C. Jara. See you on the other side, friends. And remember... Avoid fainting. Keep repeating. It's only a movie. 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 This has been a production of the Anatomy of a Screen Podcast Network. 
Anatomy of a Scream examines horror using a feminist and queer positive perspective. For more wonderful writing and podcasts, please visit anatomyofascream.wordpress.com. Anatomy of a Scream Pod Squad.